Let me tell you a story, podcast number 115. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age of never mind it is a how truth long it's been. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat. Step onto your favorite fitness machine or lace up your walking shoes and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Lisa Michelle Hess is a good friend, a good writer, and a good reader. We've asked her to join us today to read from her newly released young adult novel titled Ghost of Gold Creek. Early readers, young and old, have enjoyed this story, so stick around to hear an excerpt. Lisa, I happen to know the seed of this story germinated on an Oregon ranch and has to do with a very special horse. Could you please tell us a bit more about that ranch and the horse and how this idea took root? There's a woman named Debbie Driesner. She has the Double D Ranch in Oregon, and it's a nonprofit. Her nonprofit is called Mustangs and More, and it's kind of a rescue operation, rescuing horses and and rescuing kids, at-risk kids and kids that are special, have special needs, and the horses and the um, children work together, and they help each other to heal. And I was sitting on the porch with Debbie one day. She went to school with my sister, and we were all sitting there and talking about her ranch and this special horse that she had. And his name was Eeyore. He has since passed away. But she actually did find this horse in the Ochicos. He was actually a wild stallion. And he is the stallion that, look out, the horse in my book is based on. And uh, he was actually troubling other horses and other people there. They were having a lot of trouble with him. And he actually had charged some people on a horse and they had shot him and they thought that they had hit him, but he continued to run around. And Debbie heard about him. I think she was there with some other people doing a herd count of the wild horses in the Ochicos. And she told the directors of the wilderness area there that if they found this horse, that she would take him. And they did find him. They tranquilized him. They finally found the bullet, and I think it was in his tongue. And they pulled it out, and he and he was fine. And Debbie took him, and he turned out to be this amazing search and rescue horse that was very intuitive, that actually uh, saved a number of people in various wilderness areas who had been lost. And he was kind of a famous horse. He was in an article in Equus, and he was in a, a National Geographic special. And we were talking about this horse, and Debbie was talking about the fact that her mother had passed away when she was young, and one of the things that had gotten her through her that time in her teenage years were these um, books about girls and about horses, and and we talked about how much we didn't we had loved those kind of books when we were girls, and she said that she wished that someone would write a story not about her horse Eeyore, but that would have a horse in it, like Eeyore, uh, a horse that was misunderstood. And then through some intuitive connection between a girl and the horse, that there would be some beautiful things that happened. And that that was kind of all we talked about. 
So I wrote a very short story. The kids were much younger than they are in Ghost of Gold Creek, and and it was a much shorter novel. It was more of a novelette, and I just meant it to be something that Debbie could use on her website that might bring some more traffic to her nonprofit. But one of the other things that got into that story, besides this girl and this wild stallion and, and this father, was the fact that my mother actually had been killed just a few years before in a car accident. And it was the first thing that I had really worked hard on and really dug deep to write since my mother had died. So that also um, got into this story, the fact that a, a mother was lost and there was a girl that was left with her dad and and they didn't necessarily communicate well or understood each other, which was kind of like me and my dad. In fact, my sister and I had always had this agreement that if my father passed away before my mother, that my mother would move in with me. And if my mother passed away before my father, that my father would move in with her, because those were the parents that we got along well with. But as it turned out, my father actually decided to move out to where I was. And while his house was being built, he moved in with me. So I lost my mom and I had my dad with me. And we just had to, for the first time in our lives, really learn how to communicate and love each other. And that got into this story as well. And so I, I finished it and I gave it to a few people to read. One of them was my sister. And when she read it, she said, you know, it's a cute story, but there is this very real part in it about this mother and this girl and this father having to learn how to communicate with each other. And I think you have the makings of a real novel here and, and I'd love to see you write it. So with her encouragement, that's, I got started on writing a real novel and that's the background. They say, write what you know, and you wrote a book largely about archaeology. What's the scoop? As I said, my husband is an archaeologist, and I have been on a, a few projects with him. And, of course, we've been married for 30 years, so I've picked up a few things about archaeology. And, of course, it was great as I was writing this novel to be able to have someone living with me who I could ask a billion questions of and would patiently answer all of my questions and help me with all of that research. And again, I think there were a lot of things that I included in this novel that I didn't necessarily start out to include. Some of them I did, some of them I didn't. The archaeology I just thought was really interesting. So in, in this story, Misty's dad is an archaeologist, and he takes her from her home after her mother passes away out to this wilderness area to work on a, an archaeological project with him and a few other people who make the story even more fun. And I just think that archaeology is fascinating, and I love how much my husband loves his profession. He's one of those people that always wanted to be an archaeologist from the time he was just a little tiny tot. And he loves what he does, and he talks about it a lot. We've talked about it a lot over the years, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to bring in some interest and adventure and maybe some interesting things that not everyone knows about. And I also think if I meant to do anything other than write a fun story, I meant to bust a few stereotypes, 
in this story. And there are a lot of stereotypes in popular culture about many of the things in Ghost of Gold Creek. So things like archaeologists, things like uh, homeschooled kids, uh, people that live in the Pacific Northwest, people who live in small towns, people who live in the country, um, even Native Americans. Um, just there in our popular culture, we tend to have treat all of these things in stereotypical ways in stories. But when I read these stories, I think these are not the people that I know. I know real these real people. And I wanted to write a story about these real people and show that they could still be real and they're still exciting and they're still adventure and that real people can be the heroes of their own stories. Speaking of your characters, you just listed some. I know there's a ranching family, there's Forest Service. How about you tell us about some of the other characters? Another major character is Lou, Misty. So the main character is named Misty, and um, she is a homeschooled girl, 15 years old. And she's been homeschooled because both of her parents are career Forest Service parents. And uh, people in the Forest Service, the Park Service, archaeologists, people that have this kind of profession tend to move around a lot. And so in my story, I made Misty a homeschooled kid because I homeschooled my kids. So I know what they're like. And again, I wanted to bust some of those stereotypes about homeschooled kids. And also in the story, because her parents move around so much, that just made it easier. So that's Misty. Then her best friend, Lou, who she met in the latest town where her parents have moved. And they've lived there for four years, which is, as Misty would say, an eternity for them to live somewhere. And she's made this really good friend, Lou. And Lou is a barrel racer. She's a rodeo girl, a rodeo queen. And she is also a dancer. And um, she's trying, Lou is struggling with those two worlds that she lives in and, and trying to decide which of those worlds she wants to move forward with and, and is receiving a lot of pressure from her mom. She has a single mom, her mom, to make that decision. And then there is a boy that they meet when they come to the wilderness area who's working on the archaeological project with them. And his name is Ford. And he, Ford is an interesting character. So I, there's a lot that is, that feels kind of autobiographical in the story. Obviously, this is fiction. None of these people are real people. But I, I recognize Misty and I recognize Lou. It took me a long time to figure out where Ford came from. Ford was not supposed to really even be a main character. This certainly was not supposed to be a, a romance of any kind. And as I continued to write versions of the story, as the kids grew up, as the teenagers around me grew up, Ford became more and more of a main character. And I kept trying to put him back in his place. You know, I just kept saying, Ford, what are you doing? This is not, this is not who you are. And, and, and Ford kept saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. And I think that Misty is kind of falling in love with me. And I, and I was like, no, she's not. I don't, romance is not what I write. This is not what this is. And I kept trying to put him back in this little spot where he was supposed to live. And I just kept saying, you know, go back to your place. And he kept saying, that's not my place. And he ended up being this 
a really fun main character. So it's Misty, Lou, and Ford. Those are the main characters of Ghosts of Gold Creek. When I read it, I thought Ford would be a great name for the horse, <laughs> not for the guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a goofball. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, (laughs) since Lisa and I are in a critique group together, this is just a fun time to talk writing. I'm going to start off by saying my experience is that fiction writing looks a whole lot easier than it is. So what are your thoughts, Lisa? Well, yeah, when I started writing fiction, I had done every other kind of writing that there was technical writing and grant writing and journalism and newsletter writing, and all of it came pretty easily to me. I thought that I was a pretty good writer. And and I'm a lifelong fiction reader, avid fiction reader. From the time that I could read letters, I've been reading fiction. I've read thousands and thousands of books, and I thought, I can do this. I know how, I know how fiction works, and I know how to write. And I won't have any trouble doing this. And little did I know that the difference between writing fiction and nonfiction is like the difference between painting a beautiful oil painting and paint by numbers. And so what I'd done up until that point was paint by numbers. And this was a whole new ballgame, a different side of my brain, I came to realize really quickly than any other kind of writing that I'd done. There were rules that um, I didn't know about that make your writing better, that you just don't notice when you're reading. Um, But you realize when you start to try and write something that reads well, that there's a lot that you have to learn and a lot that you have to find out. And there's, there is a mystery to it and a commitment that it takes. And I, it took years to learn that. Do I dare ask how many rewrites over the years? I think that there have been six or seven different versions of this book. So not edits, not where I took the original version and edited it, where I started from the beginning and started over and rewrote the book. And then there have been countless, countless edited versions, hundreds of edited versions of this book before I was finally happy with it. And even I just pushed the publish button for the paperback a few days ago, and I was editing up until a few minutes (laughs) before I pushed that button. You came up with the fun idea to include video links in the Ghost of Gold Creek ebook. Can you tell us about that aspect of the digital version? Yeah, I just have have thought for years, ever since we started having electronic books, that they would lend them really well to adding video into them, to being more interactive. And I know that there are even much more interactive novels than I have. There are people that write stories that are kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure. Um, there are complete video novels where it's all on video and you can choose different places to go in the novel and different things to do. And I just love that idea. I love that melding of 
the visual and the and imagination and uh, a book. And I think I really don't have that prejudice against electronic books and devices that some people have. I don't remember who said it, but there was someone who said devices are not going to uh, make books go away. Uh, he said people can make books go away, people who don't read books. And I think no matter what you're reading your book on, whether it's an electronic device or a computer or whether you're listening to it, I think any all of those things are good. We just want people to read books. So I just wanted to include something like that into my book. And so when we were, I decided I wanted to shoot a book trailer because I always thought that would be really fun to do. And I just wanted to give it a try. And how hard could it be, you know? Um, but it, And it was hard and it was complicated, but it was also a lot of fun. And then we were able to take scenes that we had left over from the book trailer and turn those into three scenes that are sprinkled throughout the novel that readers can go see and look and see a little foreshadow of what's coming up at three different places in the story. We've talked about the book now. How about if we hear some from the book? The Dream. Unseen, I stand on the edge of a mountain and observe the events that transformed my life. I ache with futility in my desire to change the past, but there is no going back, only forward. This dream always begins with a woman, illuminated by the light of a full moon. Kneeling on snowshoes, she comforts a lucky tourist, lucky because he won't die this night. The man is waist-deep in the snow, victim of a common mistake among tourists during the mountain's spring thaw. He's fallen into a snowy sinkhole at the base of a tree. He has a broken leg and cracked ribs, and his face is twisted in pain. By some trick of the airwaves, his family managed to make cell contact with the woman at a U.S. Forest Service station in a little mountain town called Alton, Washington. She tells him to hang on. She reassures him with a confident grin that he'll be okay, and I see the agony and stress flow out of him. He believes her, because no one can resist Mom's smile. The tourist's wife and kids gather nearby, refusing to leave his side, and the rescue helicopter has only so much room. Mom, who is muffled in her thick Forest Service parka and fur-lined hood, volunteers to stay behind. She tells them she'll enjoy the hike back down, jokes around with the crew, and they don't worry. My mother is soft on the inside, but mountain tough on the outside and intrepid. She has years of mountaineering experience. When the others leave her, she is less than a mile from the trailhead. She waves and the helicopter roars away. Their lights turn, point toward Alton, and in minutes, the silence settles around her. She switches on her headlamp and begins the journey home, weaving her expert way through the trees and down the steep slope. Tackling a snowy mountain is mom in her element. I'm aware that she's anxious to get home to us. She knows she shouldn't be up there alone. I also know she loves this moment, the polar sting of crystal night air in her lungs, the way the frosted mountainside glows in the rising moon's light. But the warmth of the day has begun an early thaw. When the sun went down, the temperature dipped and the trickling slope turned into a sheet of ice. Slippery, no way to stop yourself ice. All it takes is one wrong step. 
She slips in silence over the edge of the ravine, and I go with her. For a moment, we're floating together. Sometimes those few seconds are long enough for her to speak to me, and she always says the same thing. You're just like him. Our bond ends with an abrupt thud against the tree where her body comes to rest, and here is where I usually wake up, tears on my cheeks. Tonight, as never before, I can feel her pain in every bone of my own broken body. This is new, and so is what comes next. Chapter 1 My name is Misty Stevens. I tried to catch my breath between words. Is my mom, are my mom and dad here? Karen and Paul Stevens? The receptionist pushed a button and said my name into the mouthpiece of her headset. She listened, nodding, then raised solemn eyes to mine. Someone is coming for you, Misty. You can wait right here. I had the impression she'd been expecting me. I wasn't sure if that was good or bad, and my faith that everything would be okay began to waver. After a few minutes, a nurse appeared from around a corner and approached me with a practiced half-smile that fit every scenario I could imagine. She said my name and I nodded, trying to interpret her expression. Before I could manage a question, she asked me to follow her. With brisk steps, she led me down a bright hospital corridor. She seemed kind. Why did it feel like there was a band around my heart, squeezing tighter and tighter? We entered something like a small waiting room, only it had a door you could close, and no one else was waiting. The nurse said, you can have a seat here, as she scooped a pile of magazines off a stiff-looking sofa. Your father's on his way. I didn't sit. I stood in the middle of that room as if I'd lost the will to move. Dad's husky frame filled the doorway. He made his way toward me unsteadily, exchanging a glance and nod with the nurse as they passed each other. I scanned his face, once again searching for clues. He looked like any archaeologist coming off a site, like he dug himself up. Only, in the grime on his cheeks, clean streaks ran from his eyes to his beard. Never in my 15 years of life had I seen my father cry. I collapsed onto the hard sofa and waited. Dad pulled up a chair across from me. He sat, unspeaking and hunched over, fingers laced so tightly his knuckles turned white. His lips parted, but no sound came out. Silence filled the room, and I was okay with that. As long as he didn't say the words, I could pretend Mom was alive and well. Finally, from that bowed head came a raspy whisper. The emergency team did everything humanly possible, Misty. His voice caught, and he shook his head. Your mom is gone. I'm so sorry. The words tumbled from my lips before I could even think. I wanted to make him feel better. I was desperate for him to turn back into the strong, confident dad I'd always known and make everything right. But I'd said I was sorry as if it was my fault, as if he'd lost more than I had. His head shot up and his startled eyes locked onto mine. There was the hospital buzz all around us, the concerned looking doctor hovering outside the open doorway. None of that mattered. Inside our bubble, the world stopped. I didn't know what Dad was thinking, but I was willing him with everything in me to say I'd heard him wrong. He would reassure me, tell me this was all a mistake and there was still hope. Instead, his face crumpled and tears seeped from his closed lids. For the first time, I watched my dad cry, and his tears washed away the world I'd always known. I expected him to put his arms around me and pull me close, like Mom would have done, but he didn't know how to comfort me any more than I knew how to help him. Comforting was Mom's role in both our lives, and she was gone. She was gone. I was on my own. Dad opened his eyes, but he looked at the ceiling, not me. 
In halting words, he explained what happened, as if he was still trying to understand. I thought I should be crying, but I wasn't. My hands were cold and clammy. My entire body was covered in goosebumps. A shudder ran up my spine that left me weak and lightheaded, but no tears. She survived long enough in the ravine to make contact with the rescue crew, he said. But by the time they got down to her, it was too late. Beyond numb, I didn't startle when mom's friend, June Phillips, burst into the room, her daughter Lou close behind. Paul, I'm sorry it took us so long to get here. Dad stood and turned. June took in both our faces and pulled up short. My best friend dodged around her mom and threw herself on the couch next to me, practically in my lap. Misty, this is so awful. Your poor mom. I barely registered that she was in her workout clothes. June must have picked her up at the dance studio. Despite her nickname, Lou was all girl and she was in full drama mode. She put her arms around my neck and laid her head on my shoulder, unaware of how bad the news really was. I said nothing, finding it harder and harder to swallow past the lump in my throat. I could see them both in profile and all dad had to do was shake his head at June. Her mouth opened and her whole body slumped. Oh no. She took in a sharp breath, reached out and touched his arm. Lou must have been watching because I felt the shock go through her. She pulled back and whispered, Misty. But I couldn't look at her. I couldn't tear my eyes from Dad. He squeezed June's hand and turned toward the waiting doctor. June was wiping away tears and both, but with both hands by the time she turned toward me. Her gaze softened and she murmured, okay. She squared her shoulders, took a deep breath, and let it out slowly on her way to the empty seat beside me. Easing me close to her, she kissed the top of my head and reached across to grasp Lou's hand. Encircled in their grief and their love, my throat tightened around a rising sob. June whispered, I'm so sorry, Misty. I went by your house like your dad asked me to, but you were already gone. How did you get here? I heard it on the scanner. I was surprised at how normal my voice sounded. I rode my bike. She nodded, and we all fell silent. What else was there to say? Outside the open door, I could see Dad talking to the doctor. He took the clipboard the doctor handed him and signed the papers attached to it. When he gave them back, the doctor said something I couldn't hear, placed a hand on Dad's shoulder, and walked away. And that was it. That's all it took to transform a family from one that everybody envied to only Dad and me. He rubbed his face and stared at the dirt that came off in his hands. He acted surprised, like he'd forgotten he was checking sites along the river earlier that day as if he'd forgotten everything about his life before mom's accident. That was when I felt the first tear run down my cheek, because I understood. This moment was surreal, except for one sharp, piercing piece of reality we couldn't shake. Mom was gone. Chapter two. The sound of Lou's whistling snore woke me, and I glanced past the back of dad's head to see we'd driven into rain. Water poured down the windshield and faint lines on the highway glistened in the glow of our headlights. I dozed and woke and dozed again, always to the sound of our tires slashing through water and the windshield wiper's rhythmic beat. It sounded far away, Dad's voice. Girls, we're here. I opened my eyes and gently lifted Lou's head off my shoulder. She face-planted into her pillow, pulled her blanket over her head, and mumbled, Five more minutes. Raindrops drizzled across the windows, but I could see dark trees on either side of the redded driveway our suburban was bucking over. Eventually, even Lou was jarred awake. After what seemed like forever, we broke into a clearing and rattled to a stop next to a ranch house with lines I recognized, Mom's childhood home. 
From old photos I'd rescued out of her stuff, which Dad had mostly gotten rid of, I knew this house was cedar-sided, sitting in a clearing surrounded by evergreens. In the headlights, the house appeared larger than it had in the photos, and lonelier. A few steps led to a wraparound covered porch and a rough timber door. Dad turned off the car and the only sound was the ticking of the old engine cooling. He blew out a long breath and glanced back at us. I need to find a bathroom and a bed. Why don't you girls dig out whatever you'll need for tonight? We'll unpack the rest in the morning. I hoisted myself over the back of the bench seat and extracted a duffel bag, one I hoped held my toothbrush along with some clothes. Lou dug around for a couple of her bags while Dad opened up the back and pulled out a suitcase. A blast of damp, fresh air blew into the car and I smelled something. Nostalgia whispered a faint memory which vanished before my groggy mind could grasp it. I struggled out of the back seat, burdened with bags, blanket, and pillow, and trudged up the porch steps ahead of the others. Go ahead on in, miss, Dad called. I got a text a couple hours ago. They left it unlocked for us. Key'll be inside. I held the wood-trimmed screen open with my body, but hesitated before turning the door's knob. After that day at the hospital three months ago, when Dad had told me Mom was gone, crossing new thresholds and stepping into unfamiliar territory made my heart race and my breath scarce. Dad sounded tired and just barely hanging on to patient when he came up behind me. Something wrong, missed? I breathed in, heart pounding, and twisted the knob. It was stiff. I had to put a shoulder against the door and lean hard to shove it open. Hinges creaked in protest as I stumbled into a pitch-black room and pulled up short. Lou bumped into the back of me. Hold up, I'll get it. In the dim porch light, I could see Dad fumble along the wall next to the door. There it is. A click of the switch, and the room lit up. Lou whimpered, ouch, and covered her eyes. Arm outstretched like a blind person, she inched forward and eased herself over the arm of an old brown and tan plaid sofa. Flopping backward, with her pillow over her face, she mumbled, I'm sleeping here. Dad pushed the door shut behind me. It's up to you, Lou. He pointed at a narrow flight of steep stairs, but I'm guessing we can find some slightly more comfortable digs if we look around. Despite Lou's protest, the wimpy overhead light wasn't that bright. The dull glow it shed on the large space left the room's edges in shadow. It felt creepy, as if we were sneaking into someone else's house. On my right was the living room and Lou on the sofa. She'd lifted the pillow off her face and craned her neck to squint at the narrow stairway, which actually looked like it led to nothing more than a hole in the ceiling. In front of the sofa was a log coffee table and a round threadbare rag rug. A recliner rocker sat in one corner, an ancient wood stove squatted in the other. To my left, a chrome trim table floated in a sea of bare wood floor. Its blue speckled formica top matched the cracked blue vinyl seats of the four chrome chairs gathered around it. Through the open doorway beyond the table, I could see the corner of a refrigerator. Dad strode across the room and opened one of the two doors in the opposite wall. I startled when Lou leaped up. Bathroom, yes, I call it. She slipped past Dad and shut the door behind her. One bathroom and two teenage girls. Dad looked resigned. For an entire summer, this should be fun. He shrugged in response to my look, which held the opposite of sympathy. I know. He moved toward the other door. Coming here this summer wasn't your idea, right? I joined Dad at mystery door number two. Bedroom, I presume? Yep. He opened the door and switched on another dim overhead light. Most likely the room had once been a large master bedroom. Now it was more like a bunkhouse, with one double bed and two of the walls lined with bunk beds. Hooks and shelves covered the other walls. Huh, Dad frowned. They must have some larger groups that come through here. I had an awful thought. We're not all sleeping in this room. I stared at him, wide-eyed. 
The toilet flushed and Lou wandered out of the bathroom. She glanced at us standing in the doorway of the bedroom, shrugged, and ventured up the squeaky staircase. What? Dad peered over his glasses. The idea was to spend some quality bonding time this summer, wasn't it? Dad? I figured he was teasing, but I was in desperate need of reassurance. You are joking, right? Before he could answer, a thud dropped above our heads, followed by the sound of creaking floorboards. Lou's muffled, oh cool, filtered down to us. Misty, come up here, this is going to be great. I whirled, leaving Dad in the bunk room behind without a backward glance. Upstairs, Lou stood in the middle of an attic loft bedroom. Through two four-paned windows on the wall behind her, I could see out over the porch to the dark outline of woods beyond the front yard. Twin beds under the windows held bare mattresses, but someone had left thermal blankets and sheets folded on top of them. Lou threw herself onto one of the beds and stretched out, hands behind her head, legs crossed. This is way better than I expected, Misty. I mean, it's basic, but it'll be cool, like a summer-long slumber party in a treehouse. She pulled a bunch of bracelets off her wrists and dropped them on an apple crate between the two beds. A double dresser was pushed against the wall next to the doorway, the only other piece of furniture in the room. Here, too, hooks lined the walls. Lou was right. There was something charming about the loft, and I tried to picture my mom in this room, like a princess in a tower, only Western style. It didn't take us long to make up the beds with the donated linens and the quilts we'd brought from home. I snuggled under my blankets and lay there, listening to the creaks and groans of the old house. It smelled like most dig quarters, musty, with hints of mold, sweat, old food smells, and pine-scented cleaning chemicals. Other than Lou's soft snores, it was very quiet, even compared to sleepy little Alton back home. But the house's thin walls weren't exactly soundproof. I could hear the wind in the trees and the soft rains patter on the porch roof. Few people would find the place luxurious, but despite the familiar scent, this was way better than most archaeology camps. Mom had donated the land and its buildings to the Forest Service after her parents had passed away. It was the house where she'd been born and raised, picking apples, farming, and breaking horses with her father. Something about it was already beginning to feel like home. No sign of Mom, though. I was pretty sure the thrift store furniture I'd seen so far was not the same furniture Mom's family had owned. A lot of those pieces were back home in Alton. The attic was empty of discarded possessions, no old toys or posters on the walls, not one thing to haunt me with the memory of my mother. I should have been relieved. I woke with tears on my cheeks from the same recurring dream where I found myself, on the side of a mountain, watching Mom's last moments of life night after night. Filtered light danced across pine beams above me, and the only sound was an occasional plop, like water dripping somewhere outside. I rubbed my eyes and peeked over at Lou, hoping I hadn't been yelling in my sleep again. A strangled snuffling erupted from the tangle of pillow, blankets, and girl as she turned over, undisturbed by the tinny ping of the old bed springs. I breathed a sigh of relief. She was still asleep. Clutching the covers under my chin, I remembered my disappointment of the night before. The familiar band tightened around my chest. I caught a glimpse of something on the log beam directly over my head. I pushed the covers back and struggled to stand in the middle of the bed. Groggy and a little off balance, I used the wall beside the bed to steady myself. With my other hand, I traced the rough letters with my finger. K-A-M. Crudely carved, as if by a young child, but unmistakably mom's initials. Karen Anya Murphy. My knees hit the bed, and I exhaled. After accepting the fact that we were coming here for the summer, ready or not, I'd hoped to find some sign of mom in the Juliet Mountains, and this was it. Proof my mom was here, before she was my mom. I smiled. She'd left this one signature behind. Were there others? I had all summer to search for them.
I crawled to the head of the bed and reached for the window above it. Pushing the faded curtain aside, I twisted the old bronze latch and cracked open the window. Water droplets sprinkled onto the porch roof below. I shivered in the moist morning air that seeped in. In the distance, the whistle-warble call of meadowlark tangled with a nearby rustle of a breeze through tall grass. I breathed in the pungent scent of wet sage and... something else. It was the scent from the night before, whispering of my childhood. Sharp evergreen with undertones of warm, sweet vanilla. Ponderosa pine. I'm toddling through dry evergreen needles, placing one foot in front of the other, holding my hands out for balance. Stumbling across a rough spot, I abruptly find myself sitting. Unbothered, my gaze moves up, up, trying to see the tops of the trees, but they are too high. I put my hands out to keep from falling backwards, scrunch my fingers in the pine needles, and quickly shake them when the tiny barbs prick my skin. All around me, scraps of sunlight litter the forest floor. Though I suspect they can't be captured, my arm stretches toward the closest one. The sound of my mother's laughter stops me. I look up to see her smile, and I giggle in response. She sits behind me, puts an arm around my waist, and pulls me into her lap. With her other hand, she gently turns my pudgy palm up and moves it beneath one of the beams of light. I hold the bright spot in my hand, and it feels warm, like a kiss. I don't know how I knew, but I was certain that memory had happened here, in this place somewhere in the Juliet Mountains. Lou groaned, pressed her face into the pillow, and burrowed further under her covers. I let the curtain drop, climbed out of bed, and dug some sweats out of my bag. The bottom of me taken care of, I tiptoed across the cold wood to where my hoodie lay in a heap in the corner. After shaking it out, because spiders, I pulled it over the thin t-shirt I'd worn to bed. Based on the mingle aroma of aftershave and freshly ground coffee that met me halfway down the stairs, I figured Dad was already up, but he was nowhere in sight. I rummaged through the grocery bags parked on the kitchen counter. Among other things, I discovered some instant hot chocolate packets, toast makings, and homemade huckleberry jam from our favorite booth at the Alton Farmer's Market. My breakfast balanced in one hand, I opened the front door and pushed through the unlatched screen. The seating choices were two weathered Adirondack chairs and a swing attached to the porch roof. I gave the swing a little nudge with my knee. It creaked sleepily back and forth. Enticed but not quite trusting it, I set my cup on the railing and settled into one of the chairs, pulling my bare feet onto the chair and stretching the bottom of my hoodie around my knees. The morning was still and cool. This was where I was going to spend the summer and I had to admit it was beautiful. In front of the house, a small patch of spindly pine grass cropped short was bordered by a split log fence on the far side. Past the fence, a gravel drive ran from the back of the house and connected to the rough dirt road that led to the highway. Grassland that had probably once been pasture stretched out beyond the drive until it met a thick stand of pine and underbrush. I stared at those trees and that feeling of familiarity crept back. I'd been here before, I was sure of it. Or not. Maybe I only recognized features from all the pictures of Mom's childhood Lou and I had been poring over and posting for weeks. I'd managed one sip of cocoa when I heard brisk footsteps crunching through gravel from behind the house. Dad appeared on the driveway. Morning, Misty! He took the porch steps, two at a time, more cheerful than I'd seen him in weeks. I gave him a crooked smile, still only half awake. He gave the swing a push. Mm, let me do some work on that before anyone sits on it. He gestured toward the mountain peaks that rose above the trees, blue and hazy in the early morning light. I nodded. Yeah. Dad sucked in a deep breath, exhaled, and dropped into the chair next to me. 
It felt like we were alone in the universe, and that usually made me uncomfortable. But the sweetness of the cocoa on my tongue, the warmth of the cup between my hands, and the beauty of the morning, it was a near-perfect moment. I heard a familiar snuffling sound above us, and Dad made a face. I'd left my window open, and the sound of Lou snoring in her bed easily carried to the porch. He gave my arm a nudge. Guess what I found in the barn out back? Not rats or something nasty, I hope. Ah, Misty, always the optimist. Nope, nothing nasty. I found all the equipment for the project that I asked for, which is good. In addition, he paused dramatically, I found a surprise. What kind of a surprise? I was suspicious. Springing this project on me and uprooting me from my home had been enough of Dad's surprises for one summer. A good surprise or a bad surprise? He squinted into the distance, as if he was seriously considering my question. I guess that all depends on your point of view. I think she and I have come to an understanding, though. You and... Who? Dad, what's in that barn? I struggled to get out of the low chair while balancing my plate and cup so I could check out the barn for myself. He reached for my dishes, laughing. Need a little help there? At the sound of vehicles rattling up the long, bumpy drive from the highway we both turned, a U.S. Forest Service truck came into view, followed by a cool, faded blue Ford F-150. Dad jumped to his feet. Here comes the welcome wagon. Why don't you see what you can do with the undead up there while I get acquainted with our hosts? We'll meet you girls around back at the barn when you're dressed. I started for the door but turned back. Dad? What is it, Misty? Have I been here before? With Mom, I mean? You know, he nodded, stroking his beard. I'd forgotten, but you were here once before, right after your grandma passed away. I was stuck on a project, so I came for the memorial service and left. You and Karen stayed to clean out the house. He shook his head. I don't know how you could remember it, though. You were, what, maybe two years old? Did she tell you about it? I shrugged. He steadied me for another couple of seconds, turned, and headed down the porch steps. But Mom hadn't told me, and I did remember that day in the woods. It was one of the first lessons my mother ever taught me, that things aren't always what they seem, but they can still be beautiful. While Dad was talking to the people from the local Forest Service office, I showered and dressed and after repeated attempts managed to drag Lou from her quilt cocoon. She mumbled something unintelligible and headed straight for the bathroom, so I decided to unpack my stuff. I pulled out jeans and shorts, a couple flannel shirts, and a bunch of t-shirts. I had the flip-flops I'd worn on the trip the day before. I'd also brought my hiking boots to work in and my favorite pair of blue chucks. I deposited the box of Mom's photographs on the apple crate between our beds and pulled out her old orange sweater that I'd stuffed in the bag with the photo box. After I hung the sweater on one of the pegs, I stepped back. I wasn't sure why I'd thrown it in at the last minute. I grabbed my sneakers and hit the main floor as Lou emerged from the bathroom in a cloud of steam, stunning, as always. She was wearing boots, jeans, and a t-shirt with Doesn't Need a Cowboy emblazoned in sequins across the front. She twisted her long, dark hair into a bun and smiled. Let's do it. I felt like a little kid standing beside her in my blue Converse, frayed cutoffs, and a vintage Care Bear t-shirt, water still dripping off the ends of my blonde reds. For sure, no one would ever mistake us for twins. I raised an eyebrow. Nice shirt. Yeah, go mom. She gave it to me at the beginning of rodeo season before I dashed all her dreams about my barrel racing star status this summer. I have to say, though, I actually love this shirt. I elbowed her. You're a star to me. I was only half-joking. I loved Lou, the best friend I'd ever found in all our moves and all the remote locations over the years. Always being the new kid, the new homeschooled kid, was sort of the nightmare of my childhood. It was so hard, in fact, that the years we lived in places where there were no other kids, where it was only me and my parents, those were the best years of my life. Until Lou. 
She was a year older than I was, but we'd connected the first time we met. I think she needed someone in her life who wasn't bursting with expectations for her future successes. I just needed a friend. She was beautiful and popular, and her family had lived in Alton forever. When she accepted me, so did all her other friends. It wasn't going too far to say she'd changed my life. Thanks for coming along and keeping my summer from being a total loss. Are you kidding me? She looked at me like I was crazy. A chance to get away from my mom for a few weeks? You're doing me a favor. I love her, but she was driving me insane. You're not a little girl anymore, Lou. You need to make a decision, Lou. Dancing your rodeo, Lou. Gah! Lou's June impression was spot on. It was like she kept confusing me with you. So sad, she sighed, shaking her head. You'd think she'd know by now. You're the responsible daughter. I'm the flighty daughter. And from what I know about her teen years, I'm exactly what she deserves. When we walked out the front door, the vehicles were all parked in front of the house, but no one was around, so we headed back to the barn. There was still moisture in the air, but the day was warming and drying fast now that the sun was up. Nothing stayed damp for long in the high desert, even this far up in the mountains. I knew that from past projects. We were almost to the barn, another cedar-sided building with a pitched roof weathered to gray, when the door crashed open. I stopped short, but Lou jumped back and yelled, Whoa, as a tall, lanky guy stumbled out the door, struggling with the kind of heavy frame screen archaeologists used to sift dirt. Dust and bits of hay swirled and settled around him, and we all stared at each other in surprise. He was about 17, I guessed, with short black hair and equally dark eyes, eyes that sized up Lou and me in no time flat. That's just as beautiful as I remember it. One more question. Uh, do you have a sequel in the works for this book? The one thing that I uh, that drives me crazy about certain books is that it seems like people don't know how to end a book. And so this book definitely has an ending. Um, it, could, it could stand alone, but it also leaves room for a sequel. So we will see. Which leaves us guessing then. And maybe you're guessing, too. <laughs> well, thanks so much. I don't know how you read that much that well without a drink of water. Wow. So why don't you tell us how we can get the book, your website, and all that stuff? The book is available at all the normal online retailers, so Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, all, all the other normal places where you would find uh, online books. And uh, there are also a few local bookstores where you'll be able to find it. You'll be able to find it here in Boise, where we are at the Boise Barnes & Noble. And then uh, you can also contact me through my website. And it's easy to find because it's the same name as my name, lisamichelles.com. And you can learn all about me, about the other things that I like and the things that I do. And let me know that you stopped by. I'd love to keep in touch with you. That's L-I-S-A-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-H-E-S-S dot -E -E com. Thanks, Lisa. I think this is, oh, maybe the third or fourth time that we've had you on the podcast, and we love it every time you come. And that's going to do it for this podcast. We trust you enjoyed this podcast as much as we did. Remember, live your story to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. 
That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.